This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A. Well, he came, he ate our candy, he taught us to fly a bike, and then he left us in tears. I'm of course talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial, star of the 1982 Steven Spielberg blockbuster that had a generation pondering friendship with the cosmos. If you're one of our special donors over at Sister Podcast, now playing podcast.com. You probably already heard hosts Jacob, Arnie, and myself review the original movie and assess that original close encounter that Earthling child Elliot has with the stumpy brown alien that gets marooned in Southern California. And a good portion of that review, we do speculate on how the psychic bond those two form will influence their future lives. How will Elliot develop into manhood? now that he has E.T. in his head. I didn't think I would ever get any conclusive answers, because Spielberg was pretty firm that he would never make a sequel to E.T. He thought about it for about a year. You know, I think success goes to people's heads. It was his biggest financial success, and the sequel was demanded. We all wanted to know what would happen next. But Spielberg was afraid of tainting the magic of the original movie, and so he nixed the idea of ever filming a sequel. However, he did allow for a new chapter of E.T.'s life to be told in book form. And that's what I'm here today to review. It's called E.T., The Book of the Green Planet. And it picks up right where the movie ends, with E.T. staring at Earth out of his porthole, heading home. I'm not entirely sure how much involvement Spielberg had with this project. We know that he had to give it the green light in order for it to get published. He does have a story credit, so I think that he came up with at least a vague concept that plays out here. And it could have been just as simple as saying, hey, what is E.T.'s homeworld like? What does it look like? What does he do there? Who are his friends? That's the kinds of things that this book largely explores. But the author of this is not Spielberg or the E.T. screenwriter, Melissa Matheson. It is William Kotzwinkel. A man with a very eclectic resume. In the 70s and 80s, he wrote fantasy novels, as well as the novelization of the original E.T. movie. And he has a story credit on Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And currently known as a children's book author, he wrote a successful series called Walter the Farting Dog. Eh, I don't have kids. I don't know that one, but maybe it's a classic. Walter the Farting Dog the original E.T. novel, some fantasy works, and Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And it's written at the level of what I would describe as a young adult novel. I think that 8 or 9, pushing into 12, 13, 14, is about the reading age that could appreciate the way that Kotzwinkel has written the prose. It's definitely not Kitty. I think that that would have been one way to go. Maybe even a preferable way to go would be to tell the story of E.T. at home in pictures, you know, simple words, maybe even pop-ups. I think that that would be a nice way to convey the flora and fauna of a foreign world with E.T. But 
they're going for something different here. They're really wanting to capture the spirit of the original and carry over that story because E.T. and Elliot are going to reunite. E.T. Book of the Green Planet, it might as well be called E.T. Escape from the Green Planet because that's all that E.T. wants to do. He is obsessed with leaving home once he gets back. And home looks nothing as I would have imagined it. I always kind of saw the character as amphibious. Maybe the planet was watery predominantly. That's Earth. Earth is described as the blue planet, the water planet. This is a green planet, a planet dominated by vegetation without much water. I don't know how that's possible, but these are alien plants. And there are a lot of them. I would say that most of the work is devoted to E.T. consoling himself with various anthropomorphic plants with a litany of absurd names. He has the geranium that Drew Barrymore character Gertie gave him, but there are all kinds of alien species. Beeper beans, jumpums. There are too many to name. But they're mostly his friends here. It's really a stunning realization to know that E.T. is alone when he gets back and that his contemporaries are angry at him. The perception is that him getting marooned on Earth was his fault and that he should be punished by having to be demoted. He is actually a doctorate. He holds a degree. He is one of the head botanists on a green planet. I would think that that's a very big deal. Well, they sent him back to the manure fields, and his contemporaries tell him that until he forgets about Earth, that he will be doing grunt work. Ouch! I mean, I always just had in my head that he was a little kid. Much like Elliot was. That's why they bonded so well, is that they were in the same station in life, even though they were different species. You know, we do meet E.T.'s parent. He's a single parent, and they don't even live together. He doesn't even offer much advice. It's just sort of silently hovering in the background, watching their child be scolded. It's not very satisfying, and it's not very loving. I thought of these guys as all heart lights and glowing fingers and you know, kind of hippie, really, you know, flower children of the literal kind. But no, it's really not like that. And who can blame E.T. that he wants to get away when your best friend is Flopgloppel, a pile of gray socks that is fast, stupid, and loving. There are these little microtechs who are almost like ants, but with fibrous fingers, hundreds of fibrous fingers that used to manipulate on a microscopic level plant life. Imagine spending an afternoon in the manure fields with them. And to make things more traumatic for E.T., he still has psychic reverberations, connections to what's happening on Earth. It's not entirely clear, but he still is keyed into what's going on in Elliot's life. And he doesn't like it. They kind of continue on with the themes of Peter Pan that were established in the movie. If you've listened to that movie podcast, we talk about how that was sort of a guiding principle and how Spielberg told the story. E.T. is now literally like Peter Pan. He does not want Elliot to grow up. Back on Earth, Elliot is starting to grow sideburns and crushing on a girl and has totally forgotten about him. And E.T. wants to escape from the green planet, not only because, you know, he's working a manure field, 
but he feels he has to go back and help his friend stunt his maturity. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? This seems almost antithetical to what E.T. was about, about how to grow up and mature and face adulthood, and now he's actually wanting to stop it and whisk him away to Neverland. It's not entirely clear to me how E.T. plans to do this. Will he kill Elliot? Will he kidnap Elliot? I don't know. All we do know is the report that he's given to his elders, and he's gotten everything wrong. He's romanticized all of the bad behavior he's done on Earth, stealing things and drinking beer. This is what he's proud of. The book is filled with humor about all the things that he did not understand about Earth, that he's retold that they have this festival called Hollow Bean, which is, of course, when he was on Earth, it was Halloween, and that candy is their primary fruit and that children rule the planet, thus why he must keep Elliot a child. He actually thinks Mike's real name is Penis Breath. I mean, he got everything wrong here. I mean, what's that old adage about it's better to be quiet and thought an idiot rather than speak and have it confirmed? I never thought E.T. was stupid. I always thought he was quite the contrary. The sage, the knowing, comforting adult in a broken home where kids didn't have a father figure, that he kind of played that role. But no, he's an idiot. And Earth culture has really perverted his own. He doesn't want to eat his vegetables anymore. He wants bubblegum. He's saying things like doodly squat and I've got to party. Honestly, the other ETs ought to let him go back because, you know, one bad apple, get it out of here before it infects your whole culture here. But no, the book is 245 pages, and well over 200 of it is devoted to E.T. trying to get off of his planet. At first he does this by literally trying to steal the ship that brought him back. He goes to a rock quarry and befriends these crystalline outcasts. I get the sense that they're bad figures. They carry guns. They're named things like Sinestro, Occulta... Electrum, I can only presume this is a bad crowd that E.T. is running with now. But they're going to be the ones to help him power the ship and fly back because he's a botanist, he's not a pilot, he doesn't know how to work the ship. They come in with guns blazing, and I bet you didn't know, but that rainbow ship that E.T. flew away in, it's got guns too. There's actually a battle. They get tied up with lasers. It's, it's crazy. Meanwhile, every 12 pages or so, we cut back to Earth and see how Elliot is doing. The family is still dysfunctional, but in a commonplace way. Gertie is arguing about having to wear galoshes. Mike is tuning them out by reading sports magazines. The mom is actively trying to get a new father for the kids by dating a computer programmer. And Elliot has become obsessed with this girl named Julie. I don't know if this is the same blonde that he had a crush on in the original movie. We don't know much about her beyond the fact that she has a rhinestone ponytail and she likes to flirt. And Elliot is finding himself taking late night bike rides past her house, spying in windows. It's kind of stalkery, but hey, it mirrors E.T.'s own stalker fixation on Elliot because E.T. is observing all of this through his psychic powers, and sending little miniature versions of himself, some magically created hologram that flies across the universe to land on Earth to thwart and cockblock Elliot's attempts to get with Julie. 
and it is an endless source of humor for the author, William Cotts Winkle, to continue to put these little mini-ETs in precarious situations. They come flying back down, and it's miscalculated, and they hit an auto dealership guy, and he ends up being honest and selling only good cars, or it falls into a swimming pool and drowns. Isn't that hilarious to watch E.T. drown while Elliot is macking on a girl in a swimming pool? This must happen at least a dozen times, and I tell you, once or twice would have been enough, particularly since we don't want E.T. to have this influence. It's unhealthy that E.T. is trying to stop Elliot from being a man. But he will not quit, even though he finally recommits to his life of botany and growing plants, and everyone starts to think that, okay, maybe he is finally readjusting to life back home. Nope, he's actually growing a garden that he will use to build his own spacecraft, because he is planning to return to Earth in a giant turnip. I am not kidding you. And I cannot believe that Steven Spielberg said, you know what you should do, flying turnip. But that's what this climax of this novel is. They go into all sorts of obsessive faux science details about how he gets roots that do explosions that will help with liftoff, and then there's another plant that will be a heating system, and more plants that will create the oxygen he needs to breathe, and how he gets this turnip flying past all the Orwellian security that is put in place to prevent him from leaving. Again, I say, let him go. In fact, you might even want to follow him and nuke Earth culture for doing this to him because he looks crazy and I couldn't blame an alien species for wanting to take us out for doing this to one of their own kind. I'm pretty much hating every page of this, but I'm still wanting to know what is going to happen when these two get together. How is Elliot, the teenager, going to respond to a giant turnip falling down and ruining his date with Julie? But we don't even get that. They stop short of that. E.T. gets away from his planet and the police that are chasing him, but he does not get back to Earth. He is left going in transit, and his last telepathic little hologram E.T. gets to Earth to help Elliot. It actually hits him in the head, and Elliot gets the confidence to go dance with Julie, that Julie has another boyfriend named Snork Johnson, you know, at this point, I know you're just pulling my leg here. Snort Johnson, captain of the junior swimming team, is taking Julie away from Elliot until this mini E.T. flies into the gymnasium, smacks him on the head, and he grabs her and they start dancing. Julie's literally like, you're a smooth dancer, Elliot. Smooth. Ain't nothing smooth about Elliot, E.T., or this novel. What? A disaster. I did not read E.T., the Book of Green Planet, back in 1985. I might have already been getting over E.T. at that point. It was coming three years late, which is an eternity in childhood. I was probably off collecting garbage pail kids at this point. But even if I had, I, I would have hated this. This captures none of the spirit of the original movie. Wasn't the whole thing that E.T. was going to die if he came back to Earth? Is this a suicide mission? I'll tell you what, this book feels like suicide. This feels like the death of E.T. And I've got to say, 
strong not recommend on this. Guys, don't even go near it. I hope I've amused you with the craziness of this, but it is painful. Painful as prose, painful as a story. It's a disaster. Strong, strong, not recommend on Book of the Green Planet. But I do recommend that if you can, to join us over at nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you can find the $25, join us to hear the original review of the movie, as well as other Steven Spielberg alien adventures. We've already covered Close Encounters, and next week we're going to be covering War of the Worlds. And that one, I'm actually going to do a Books and Nachos next week, covering the original H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds to complement the Steven Spielberg, Tom Cruise War of the Worlds. We're releasing that podcast next week, as well as Alien. The $25 is going to get you my childhood favorite movie series, Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, and Prometheus, plus the three Spielberg works for $25. I do recommend, if you can, to join us on those shows. They're some of my very favorite that I've ever recorded. But next week, here on Books and Nachos, we're going to be going back to a classic. H.G. Wells' original 1898 novel, War of the Worlds, that's next week. Thanks for joining me. Keep reading. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at potsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.